0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, Senior Pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. So tonight, I want to uh, talk with you about something that has been on my heart for the last several months. It's something the Lord has had me focusing on. Uh, since about April or May of this year. I don't know why I always feel the need to share the origin story of my sermons with you guys, but I think it's because I want you to know the heart behind my words. So for now, I'm just going to keep doing it. Last time I preached on a first Wednesday, that was back in April, I came with six pages of notes, and I think I was right in the, the confines of the time of the service, roughly. Tonight, I have 12 pages of notes, so Going to need you to agree with me to get out what needs to be uh, shared tonight. So anyway, the back story for tonight's message goes back to late April, early May. I was getting ready to mow my lawn one day, and I have, as many of you probably do, kind of a routine, a rhythm. I, part of that for me involves listening to music while I mow. So I was getting ready to do that, and I just felt the Lord prompt me in this particular time to spend the time mowing in prayer rather than listening to music. So I'm like, all right. One of the things I prayed about, asked God about, because this was April, May time, we were ending that round of small groups that goes from January to May, and I I knew I was going to be leading another one in the round that starts in July or August. So one of the things I was praying about was, God, what do you want me to do for the next round of small groups as I lead? Because I wanted to do something slightly different than what I had done in the past. So I said, God, what do you want me to do? And I said, what is something that Living Word Family Church needs? And immediately, I love when God answers so quickly because it's like he's just waiting for you to ask. So immediately I heard the word hope. So I I don't think hope is strictly a need for Living Word Family Church. I think it's a need for the church at large, for the world at large. And I don't think it's necessarily directly tied to COVID or the the current political climate or the economic conditions of our nation. Those those are factors for sure. But hope is something we need at all times. And it's something we can have at all times. So for the past couple months in my small group, we've been watching and discussing uh, sermons on this topic of hope. But what I haven't done so far in my small group is say, all right, guys, Tonight, we're not going to watch a video. I'm just going to preach for a while. So for those of you here tonight who are in my small group, all right, guys, we're not going to watch a video tonight. I'm just going to preach for a while. So for those of you who are here who are not in my small group, your small groups aren't meeting this week, so welcome to my small group. (laughs) Title of my sermon tonight for the note-takers in the room is A Thread of Hope. A Thread of Hope, and with that phrasing, I don't mean that we have this this tiny thread of hope that we're hanging on to barely. What I mean is there's a theme, a thread of hope that is woven by God through Scripture. God can weave hope into your story better than anyone else. And a study that the Lord has been leading me through recently is this task to find hope in every book of the Bible. And it's been interesting so far. For some... Not, not necessarily the word hope, but rather the concept of hope. Find that in every book of the Bible. And for some books, that's, that's a breeze. You know, the Gospels, anything Jesus said or did, there's hope in that, right? But for some books, I'm already looking ahead thinking, okay, Ecclesiastes, Job, Numbers, oh, how am I going to find hope in that? So it's been interesting so far. But what it means for tonight is that I have 66 points in my sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Now, tonight what I want to do uh, in my introduction is quickly give a definition of what hope is and then just right out of the gate tell you where our hope is based. Then after that, we're going to look at three seasons, uh, times in our lives that we go through in which we need hope, and along with each of those, we're going to talk about a source of hope. So there's going to be three seasons, three sources, and these Seasons and sources we'll discuss are not all there is to discuss, you understand, but they will serve as a base for us in our understanding of hope and maybe even prompt you to dig a little deeper on your own. I pray that that's the case. So tonight, if you want to be turning somewhere in your Bibles, because I know Living Word brings their Bibles to church, right, physical or otherwise, if you want somewhere to be turning, you can go to the book of First Samuel. We'll get there in a little bit. If you're a super Christian, you want a second place to turn, you can go to the book of Habakkuk. Have fun with that. It might take you that long to find it. But first, I want to quickly lay a foundation for this idea of hope. What is hope in the context of the life of the believer? I touched on this a little bit about a month and a half ago when I spoke here on a Sunday morning on faith. And one of the things I said was, that hope is not faith. That's a starting point. Uh, They're two separate things. If hope and faith were the exact same thing, Hebrews 11.1 could read like this. Now faith is the substance of things faithed for. No. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Something I said in that message is that our faith is the external expression of our internal hope. Hope is the idea, it's the concept. Faith is the corresponding action, right? Additionally, hope in the biblical sense is not just a wishing. Society uses the word hope like it's a a lucky charm of some sort, and no, not the cereal. I hope I get that job. I hope it rains soon. When nine times out of ten when you hear hope used that way, it's based on absolutely nothing. But our hope, real hope, requires a basis. I said this last time too, but the biblical definition of hope is the joyful anticipation of good. Or said in another way, it is the confident expectation of good things to come. I also said that from Psalm 119, we know that God is good and does good. So we can replace the word good in that definition with the word God and say, that hope is the joyful anticipation of God or hope is the confident expectation of God things to come, right? So just thinking through this logically, how can we have that joyful anticipation, that confident expectation in God? It's because of his character, his nature. That's the basis of our hope. And that character and nature of God is revealed to us in different ways. And that's part of what we're going to be going Over tonight. So let's dive into these different things. We're looking at different seasons in our lives in which we need hope. And number one is this hope in a time of waiting. Hope in a time of waiting. I'd venture to say that all of us either have been, are currently in, or will at one point be in a season of waiting. Whether that's waiting for direction, waiting for the fulfillment of a promise, waiting for somebody else to do something, to make a decision, make a choice. It's a season we all find ourselves in. And when I was considering biblical examples of this, the first one that came to my mind was David. And I told you to go to 1 Samuel. You could be heading towards chapter 23. Now, the book of 1 Samuel is 31 chapters, and... It's a lot of history, many accounts of Samuel, of King Saul, of David, and it's not until chapter 16, so about halfway through and before David and Goliath, that we see David anointed as the next king of Israel by Samuel. That happens in chapter 16. David doesn't actually become king in the book of 1 Samuel at all. So there's chapter after chapter of content between his ordination and his finally taking the throne. Now, Second uh, Samuel 5 outright tells us that David was 30 years old when he became king, and it's believed by most theologians and historians that David was somewhere between 15 and 19 when he fought Goliath, so even younger than that when he was anointed as king. So let's just say he was 15 when Samuel anointed him. That's a season of waiting that lasted for 15 years. And you can't tell me that there weren't some moments of hopelessness during that time, and I think we see some of that during uh, the Psalms, even though many of those aren't time-stamped. We can see hopelessness in some of those, and we'll get to uh, a Psalm in a little bit, but first, 1 Samuel 23, we're going to start in verse, I'm in numbers, so that's not going to help, we're going to start somewhere, 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. So David is literally in the wilderness right now. Each day that went by was a day that Saul was getting closer and closer to finding out where David was. And this wasn't, this wasn't hide and seek, this was hide and kill. Saul was, David was running for his life at this point. And he needed hope in this moment, in, in this season of waiting. So let's keep reading. Uh, verse 16, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. So that brings us to source number one of hope, which is godly community. Godly community. In a time in his life when David was probably tempted to give up on the dream, Jonathan was there to encourage him. It says he strengthened David's hand in God. I get this picture of Jonathan taking David's hand and literally placing it back in God's. He redirected him in that moment. Have you ever seen a, a kid, maybe a toddler, that is squeezing somebody's leg? He thinks it's mommy or daddy, but then looks up and realizes it's not, and then panic ensues. What's needed at that point is just a simple redirection. Once daddy is found again, the child calms down, right? What we tend to do in seasons of waiting is attach ourselves to a wrong way of thinking. We see the word uh, in verse 14 there, and David stayed in strongholds. In the New Testament, strongholds refer to ways of thinking, and sometimes we can attach ourselves to wrong ways of thinking while we're waiting. Somewhere along the line, we've gotten away from the truth and attached ourselves to a lie. In one of the sermons we've watched in my small group, Bill Johnson said, every area in which we are hopeless is an area that is under the influence of a lie. And sometimes we can't even see it for ourselves. That's why we need community. Think of that kid, if if he's grabbing so tightly to somebody's leg, He can't see the face of that person to realize that it's a stranger. This is why we need godly community. We have to surround ourselves with people who will remind us of the truth when we are in need of hope. Jonathan said, you will be king. It didn't happen that day. It wasn't going to happen for a while still. But David needed that encouragement, and he needed it then, especially because of what happens in the next chapter David has a very real, very tangible opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. I think had Jonathan not been there to encourage him in that moment, maybe he does kill Saul and misses out on his own calling. But David found his security in his hope in God. Let's look at Psalm 16, which was written by David, just a couple verses. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9 say this. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. David knew where to place his hope, and Jonathan was there at the right time to remind him of that. Another way our hope grows in the context of godly community is by the sharing of testimonies. Uh, just this morning, I was on a walk with my mom, and she shared with me an opportunity she had to encourage someone who was uh, dealing with a recurrence of an injury and where they were kind of disappointed. Mom was able to share her own testimony of several years back when she, she broke her arm two years in a row. And she thought, after the first break, that she had experienced a full recovery. But it wasn't until after the second break that she realized there was an even fuller recovery to be had. And testimonies like that encourage us, they give us hope. A biblical example of that could be found in John 4, in the account of the woman at the well. I won't read all of this because there's quite a bit to it, but Jesus is talking with this woman and he says some things that she thought nobody knew. At one point in the conversation, he says, Go get your husband. She says, I, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband either. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of reading her mail there. And then she delivers one of the funniest lines in the Bible to me. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> really? But in verse 28 of John 4, we read this. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. While that was going on, Jesus was saying some things to his disciples, and then we skip down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. In expectation a hope of sorts had developed in them because of her testimony. Testimonies are important. Community is important, especially in seasons of waiting. So let's move to season number two, hope in a time of need or lack. Hope in a time of need or lack. This is another common area of hopelessness for many of us. When there's there's more month at the end of our money or you know, when a, an unexpected expense comes up, a car breaks down. To be faced with a need, especially out of the blue like that, can be one of the most deflating things we go through, right? And this doesn't just apply to the financial area. We have needs in other areas of our lives, right? I think of, even though it's secular, I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The pyramid, you know, he starts with the basic physiological needs of air and food, and then moves on up from there. You know what I'm talking about. All right. Unfortunately for Maslow, as an atheist, uh, he didn't understand that all of these needs that he detailed can be fulfilled in God the Father. A common verse when talking along these lines is Philippians 4.19, where Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Simple as that. As we walk the path he has for us, we'll find that he not only can fulfill our needs, but that he desires to. And it may not always look like what we think we should do to fulfill our needs, but that's where on our end of the equation, he requires that we trust him in our hearts and walk out that trust through faith-filled acts of obedience, And let's look uh, to the Word for an example of this as well. If you want to turn there, you can. It's in Jeremiah chapter 15. If I'm not mistaken, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Is that right? So just from that title, we can see Jeremiah is going to be someone who needs hope, right? So Jeremiah 15, starting in verse 10, he says this, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. So Jeremiah's got money problems too. Every one of them curses me. The Lord said, surely it will be be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories." And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Pretty safe to say that Jeremiah needed some hope here, right? Some some references to money problems. A reference there in verse 14 to the unknown. He needs hope. So in verse 15 we read Jeremiah's response. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors, and your enduring patience do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. And this is the verse I want us to see, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So this brings us to our second source of hope. first one, godly community, the second source of hope is the word of God. And again, remember how we started this. We said the basis of our hope is the character and nature of God. So these sources we're talking about are not outside of that. They are vehicles of those truths. One of the best ways we can further our our understanding of who God is is to read his word. And not just read it, but like Jeremiah, consume it and let it consume you. Another example of that concept is found in Ezekiel 3 one through three. I know I'm using a lot of scripture, but I'm keeping Matt Gordon awake back there. Ezekiel three, one through three. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Or for those of us are not big fans of honey. It was in my mouth like an Oreo blizzard in sweetness. <laughs> Praise God. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Ezekiel's message, you know that it was not sweet, right? He said some harsh things, but hope and joy can be found in all of the words of God. There may be times when God asks you to do difficult things, and it may, be, it may feel like the opposite of what you think you should do. For example, in the area of finances, you may, be, you may be struggling in that area currently, and then you're coming across passages where he's requiring that you return the first 10% of your income to him. And you're thinking, God, I don't think you understand. I need more money, not less. But he does understand. He knows your needs. Jesus says that in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. He not only knows what your needs are, but he knows the best ways to go about meeting them. Those ways may may not always make sense to our natural minds, but that's where trust comes in. The further we we go with God, the easier it becomes to trust him. And how do we go further in him? We dig into his word, right? If you're experiencing hopelessness because of a need that you're facing, find out what the word has to say about our need meeting God. So in times of need or lack, find hope in the word. And while we're talking about this area, I specifically used both words, need and lack, because not everything we lack is an actual need. And I'll explain that. Well, here's an example. One of the things we we lack sometimes in our walk with the Lord is answers. And do we always need answers to our questions? I'm going to say no, and that may sound wrong, but I'm going to prove it to you here in Scripture. So this is kind of a sub-point under number two, if you want to call this point 2.5. This is hope in a time of questioning goes along with the same source, the word, so I didn't make this a separate point. I don't need to explain that, but hope in a time of questioning. This is big. Uh, and before we go into this example, I want to remind you of the very first time we see the enemy in the word in the Garden of Eden. God had, had set up the, the ground rules, literally ground rules, of with Adam and Eve in the garden of these are the trees you can eat from, this one you can't. And the very first time we see the enemy, he goes to Eve and he says, did God really say? A word of warning here, when there is a clear-cut answer to your question in the word of God, know for a fact that the one motivating your questioning is the one who wants to get you off of your path. Your very first course of action when questioning something should be to go to the word. But, of course, what about when there's not a clear-cut answer in the word what about the very common and very crucial question that many of us ask why why did this happen why didn't this happen why am i in a season of waiting why am i facing this need we may not obtain all of the answers but that doesn't change the foundation of our hope being the character and nature of god right I remember, and I brought this up before in my small group, maybe in other contexts as well, but I remember back several years ago, I think 2017, when the duck's boat sank in Branson. I don't know how many of you remember that. This, this boat sank, all the passengers uh, died in that accident. And I remember after that, Keith Moore preaching a sermon entitled, What We Know. And his whole focus through that sermon was, okay, this has happened This is raising some some questions in a lot of us, but we're going to focus on what we know about God, not what we don't know. It was such an excellent and timely teaching. But let's look at the word here, and this is when we will go to Habakkuk, if you can find it. It's tucked away in the Old Testament towards the end. Habakkuk. If Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, Habakkuk might be known as the questioning prophet. I don't know, but that's what I'm going to say. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why? So he's asking why. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Then we see God's response starting in verse 5 Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, I'm raising now listen to this. Listen to this answer. For indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. It keeps going. But this is clearly not a very encouraging response to Habakkuk's questions, right? doesn't sound good to me. Habakkuk is asking, Lord, how long? Lord, why? Why this? And this is his answer. This goes on, this exchange between Habakkuk and God. And then in uh, chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's response to God's response to his questions. Chapter 3, verse 2, the very first part there. Oh, Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. He heard God's answers, and they made him fearful. And I'm not saying all of God's answers to our questions will cause us to be afraid. They won't. But we need to trust him enough in those situations when he doesn't answer that he knows our hearts better than we do. He knows what answers we can handle and what answers we can't, right? But check out the end of this book right here in chapter 3, starting at verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. God's answers were not the most encouraging in this situation, but Habakkuk could still rejoice and have hope because he knew that God was his strength. How did he know that? He had a relationship with God. You know, these exchanges here in these three chapters are all we have recorded, but there had to have been more where Habakkuk knew the nature and character of God in order to have that confidence. When God gives you a word, it's important that you hold on to it, especially in times of questioning. When I was in my third and last year at Ramah, the people who put together the uh, yearbook asked if they could do a student highlight page on me. <laughs> so every, every student who has a 2021 yearbook has a, has a full page just on me, and that fame has been just <laughs> almost unbearable. So they sent me a list of questions to answer, and I sent the answers back. One of the questions they asked me was, what would your advice be to current or incoming students? and I gave 10 short bullet point answers to that question. They were, you know, just short little things like take notes like you have no capacity to remember and other things that I said I don't remember. But they only listed eight of the 10 that I gave, and I I demanded a reprint. I said, I can't work like this. No, but one of the ones they left out was one of my favorites and one that I thought was really important. What I said, again, this was advice to uh, Rhema students. I said, write down and regularly review how and why God brought you to Rhema, because you're going to need it. I heard so many stories while I was there of people going through struggles, and those struggles would either lead them to quit and leave, or they would lead them back to that initial calling to remember, no, God has a plan for me here. We need to hold on to the words that God has given us. With that in mind, I want to look at probably the most famous why in the Bible, and it's one that God did not answer. And that would be found in Matthew chapter 27. This is while Jesus is on the cross. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You keep reading this account, you don't hear any response from God. Why didn't he respond? This was a very public question. Jesus is laboring for every breath on the cross at this point. I think he only made like seven statements while he was on the cross, and he uses one of them to ask this question. God, why have you forsaken me? And why didn't God respond? He hadn't changed his mind about the last public statement he made about Jesus, going way back to Jesus' baptism where he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God wasn't ignoring Jesus. He just had nothing to add to what he had already publicly said. In times of questioning, you have to tether yourself to what you already know about God. And hope is that tether. If you're tethered, God can go a long time without talking to you. We tend to call the the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew the, the 400 years of silence. And while God may not have said anything new, he was still speaking through the words of the prophets. So what do you do when you don't hear him answer you? Repeat the last thing he said to you until he speaks again. Jesus could have allowed his why to take him off the cross, but he didn't. He recalled, I believe, the last public statement that his father made about him and carried out his calling to fulfillment. So that was pretty long for a subpoint, but in the last few minutes here, let's go to season number three. Season, this season in life in which we need hope, and number three is hope in a time of grief. Hope in a time of grief. Grief is something we all can experience. And I word it like that because some of us try to avoid grief. I've I've been in that situation. Something happens, and I just, I don't want to feel. So I try to avoid processing. But if done well, the grieving process can be a good and godly thing. But what does the Bible say? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow or grieve as others who have no hope. We grieve, we are to grieve, but with hope. And times of grief are not just limited to the aftermath of a death, right? We can grieve shifts in in friendships. We can grieve what we thought life would look like at this point. We can grieve... uh, at the hearing of terrible news. It's not just death. And in those times, community is important, the word is important, but there's another source that I want us to look at. And for that, we're going to go to the book of Esther quickly. I know I'm pretty much out of time. But in Esther, I I want to limit what I actually read, so I'll kind of give a little bit of context as quickly as I can here. King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, as he's known in history, has gotten rid of Queen Vashti because she wouldn't make him a sandwich, or that's, that's my understanding of it. We went to see Esther at the Sight and Sound Theater. Sight and Sound, not Sound and Sight, yeah. In Branson, if you have an opportunity, it's also in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, one of those theaters. They're showing Esther through the end of the year. It was amazing. But when Esther, the actress that played Esther, first walked into the room, I was like, she's not an onion with no arms and legs. I was... She was a real person. Okay, so the king had gotten rid of the queen due to her insubordination and was now on the search for a new queen. Unbeknownst to him, he picks a Jewish girl, Esther. And Esther had been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And during the first few years of Esther's reign as queen... Haman has come to prominence in the the Persian Empire, and he is an enemy of the Jews. He hates Mordecai, he hates all the Jews, so he comes up with this plan to have them all destroyed. He gets the king to sign off on it. Proclamations are sent out throughout the whole land that this genocide is going to take place at the end of the year. And this is where we'll pick it up, Mordecai hearing this news. Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning along, among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai during this time because he's wearing the sackcloth he can't get into the king's gate so he can't access Esther in order to talk with her so he has to do so through somebody else he says he gets a message to her saying Esther you've got to go before the king you've got to fix what Haman has done she reports back I can't go before the king unless I'm summoned and he hasn't even summoned me in the last 30 days and here's Mordecai's answer Same uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, this is what I want us to see. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. This brings us to the third source of hope, fasting. In the face of this distressing news, this grief, Esther calls for a fast, and they do it. Then she approaches the king uninvited, and she finds favor in his sight. He says, Esther, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And again, the king says, what what is it that you want? I'll give you whatever your request is up to half the kingdom. She says, if it pleases the king, I'll make my request at another banquet tomorrow. Now, if I'm the king at that point, I'm like, all right, food tonight, food tomorrow, this is great. So between those two banquets, we see Haman really just feeling good about himself. He's he's like, I'm in a, you know, he's walking around with some swagger, you know. But check this out. This is the verse I really want us to see from Esther. Chapter 5, verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. At the beginning of chapter 4, we see Mordecai in deep grief. He's got that sackcloth on. Now it says he's in the king's gate, so he's taken the sackcloth off, right? Why is he now walking around confidently, not afraid of Haman, the man who's threatening to kill him and his people? He had obtained hope through fasting. He didn't tremble in the presence of Haman because that's what fasting does. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope. Pastor Scott has taught on this a lot here over the last several years that fasting doesn't get God's attention on us. It gets our attention on God. What have we been saying all night? Our hope is founded in the nature and character of God. When we fast and press into who he is, we can't help but gain hope. Fasting is deprivation of the flesh for the development of the spirit. Think about it like this. When you deprive yourself, you know, we're, we're natural and spiritual beings, right? When you deprive yourself of one of your natural senses, your others are heightened. Uh, my sisters had a chance to work with some blind students. As a braille assistant in the school system here in St. Joe. And she had a, a high school student who could listen to audiobooks at like, what, three times speed or more and still ace a comprehension test on the content that he heard. Because he didn't have sight, his hearing was further developed. When we deprive ourselves of something in the natural, we become more aware of the spiritual. That's fasting. Uh, The Praise and Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up as I wrap this up. If you're in a season of grief, you need hope. Real hope. And I would encourage you just to allow the Lord to lead you in this area of fasting. It's very easy for me to say, yeah, get, get in godly community or get in the word. Fasting is a little more, I want to be A little more sensitive in that area because everyone has their individual things. You may need to consult with a doctor before you were to fast, but just be led of the Lord. Put your flesh down and allow your spirit to be refreshed in hope. Then you'll be able to say with David, I shall not be moved. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. You guys can uh, go ahead and stand with me. If you're here tonight uh, and you would say, I, I don't even have the hope of salvation. Uh, I don't even know this God you're referring to. Maybe you've heard some things, but you don't, you don't have an actual relationship with him. that's where hope starts in relationship with God. So if that's you tonight, I want to pray with you to start that journey. As soon as I'm done, I'll pray, they'll sing, you can come on down and I'd love to lead you in a prayer of salvation. For the rest of us tonight, I have one more passage for us. If you're here and would say that you're currently in a season of hopelessness, maybe it wasn't one of those three that I mentioned, but maybe it was another area that you just feel hopeless. I want to give you some application. First of all, find godly community. Get in his word. Be led by him in the area of fasting. But also, I don't think a sermon on hope would quite be complete without Jeremiah 29.11, right? Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But so often we don't read What comes right after that. Verses 12 and 13, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So if you're here tonight and you're saved, he has a hope-filled future for you. And what is that? It's a lifetime of searching for God with all your heart. That's my encouragement to you. If you find yourself in a, in a season of hopelessness tonight, search for them with all your heart. And again, if you're, you're here tonight and you haven't even begun that journey, I would love to pray with you as we start to sing. So, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for hope in all circumstances, in every season. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to accept you as Savior and confess you as Lord, that you would give them the boldness to do so. For the rest of us, if there's anyone here experiencing hopelessness in a certain area, God, I just ask that you direct them in every way to your word, to your voice, to godly community. May they follow your leading into hope, because that's the future you have planned for all of us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.